Thank you very much indeed um, for inviting me to, to give this contextual um, talk, as it were, but also to uh, being a critical friend to the project. It's been a fascinating experience so far, and uh, I'm sure will continue to be. I'm just going to uh, make a few opening remarks, um, if I may. Uh, this is what I'm going to say. I will be informal as well and take my jacket off. Um, and I'm, um, I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit about what makes me qualified to do this, to start off with, so that, so that Scott didn't have to introduce me. Um, I've been in a number of roles, both in the policy and the university side of things. I've moved from Sussex University to UUK, in a similar kind of role to Amy, um, and then to uh, the Open University Centre for Higher Education Research and Information, and then for a while I was at Hefke, where I was Head of Learning and Teaching Policy, and then now into, well, then into the Institute of Education, uh, and now I find myself, through no fault of my own, in UCL. Um, uh, so I've kind of done a, you know, both sides of the house, as it were, um, and uh, I've undertaken quite a lot of policy research, and I've actually commissioned quite a lot of policy research as well. So I've been on both sides of the fence there. Clearly I've been involved with SOHE for quite a long time, and hoping to support researchers um, have their findings disseminated uh, in the policy arena. And now I'm um, Deputy Director of the Centre for Global Higher Education, the new, ESR, relatively new, ESRC Centre uh, at the Institute of Education. And my particular remit, given my background, is to encourage um, a number of what we call associate organisations to get involved in the centre and the centre's work. So that's people like UUK, um, the, the representative bodies UUK, Guild HE, NUS, um, think, tanks, think tanks like HEPI and the IPPR and the Social Market Foundation, um, media outlets like Time Tire, University World News, um, and uh, then hybrid organisations like Wonky. So they're all very much involved in the projects that we do. We're basically th 13 projects um, and we're trying to engage them in, in, in the research at the point of design and then development, doing the research, and then dissemination. So it's throughout the whole kind of life cycle of the research. Um, I'm going to just say a little bit about um, the context that I'm using, in a sense, uh, I think an article I wrote uh, in 2009 was published in Higher Education Policy, I think it was one of the reference points for the project. <coughs> so I'm going to say a little bit about how things may have changed since 2009, actually 2008 when I wrote it, or maybe it was even 2007, given the nature of, of academic publishing nowadays. Um, over those last um, eight years, say. Um, and then I'm going to uh, suggest some things that both researchers, higher education researchers in particular, and policymakers might like to reflect on that might help us to explore some of the issues that are, are being raised by this project. So that's what I'm going to do, briefly as I can. Um, uh, and I've drawn for this on a little bit on an interesting... A book recently published by Jeff Whitty, colleague of mine, former colleague of mine at the Institute of Education. This is all about um, all phases of education, but there, is, there are some chapters in there about higher education in particular, and I find it very interesting the way he and his colleagues there uh, have thought about the relationship between research and policy in education. So that's just a plot of that. That came out this year. Um, so in 2009, when I was writing 2008, there was actually... Um, across government and the civil service, a wide uh, commitment to evidence-based evidence policy making. 
Now I feel that that's loosened somewhat over the years in between. Um, and you might think of the grammar school policy and the policy around universities sponsoring schools to be um, an example of how, how loose it's become in the sense that most of the evidence in those fields is suggesting the opposite of what the policy is being proposed. Um, but we do still have this cyclical process, the spending review, in which departments gather evidence and provide this to the Treasury. Um, various government departments and policy bodies do, do, do still um, commission research to back up their policy development. Um, Theresa May herself said, and then I quote recently, this is the way I operate. I don't just come in and say I'm going to take a decision. I actually look at the evidence, weigh up the evidence, take the advice and consider that and come to my decision. So at least we can hold her to her words, or try to. Um, and then more kind of narrowly, in terms of my own position, um, the ESRC has actually significantly funded um, uh, a development in, in higher education research for the first time um, in, in, the C, in the CG, in the Centre for Global Higher Education, that certainly I've not been aware of any such sizable investment in the past. Many organisations and policy bodies are still advocating the use of research evidence in policy making. And there's been an explosion in data, the growth of, of the use of data. Um, there's a growth in the capacity for collecting data, partly result, as a result of so much activity going online, so it's much easier, easier to um, automatically monitor what's going on. Um, then, of course, there's the potential for the public, the population, the electorate, to use this data to evaluate the data and to make up their own minds about certain things. And this has been matched by the fact-checking fact movement that has arisen over the last few years, particularly during elections and referenda and so on, which has been uh, trying to agenda a more responsible use of metrics and data in the policy debate and reporting. There has been uh, an undermining of the trust in politicians and policy making, um, and certainly in the EU referendum we noticed um, a widespread suspicion of experts and expertise um, who were regarded as rather self-interested voices of the establishment who have been cushioned from the impact of the recession and austerity um, and immigration um, and who are said to be more concerned about uh, their next EU grant and defending their privileged position. And universities have a responsibility in that kind of assumption and development of those kinds of ideas in the way in which they campaigned in the EU referendum about rather narrow set of university interests rather than more global ones. We can debate that later. Um, and although academics are constantly in the media, particularly on radios four and five, being interviewed, it's usually rather about, um, uh, well, so, sorry, they're, they're usually rather <coughs> less um, willing to become a more rounded public intellectuals talking about more general issues. They're usually uh, interviewed on specific aspects of their research, um, often there because they're, I would say, they're um, uh, developing their careers and um, uh, not, not establishing that sort of broader role. Um, and I don't know if this is a real development or something I'm just imagining, but there seems to be um, uh, some of the more distinctive critics of the current develop developments either having to or deciding to shift outside of the mainstream higher education. So I'm thinking of people like um, Andrew McGettigan and Joanna Williams. And then there's also that phenomenon 
of the former vice chancellor suddenly realizing the oppositional uh, suddenly realizing their voice in terms of opposing current policy consensus uh, i won't uh, i won't name any names there uh, so that's uh, some of the things that um, have developed uh, i think uh, over the last sorry i put you on the wrong slide didn't i I went too fast. That, so that's some of the context that's changed over the last few years. Um, some things that uh, higher education researchers might reflect on. Um, first of all, how evidence-based is higher education research? It's a question I think we might ask ourselves. Because quite a lot of what is, or some of what is published under that rubric is actually largely commentary, polemic, and impressionistic interpretation. But that then raises the question of what is unacceptable or appropriate evidence base. Often it seems to me that policymakers are looking for unambiguous findings that provide clear-cut guidance for decision-making, often more quantitative evidence than the qualitative ones that we perhaps in education feel more comfortable with, looking for hard data um, that will provide some kind of um, direction for policy. And there's been a push towards things like the What Works movement, in term, and that's more in terms of practice than policy, perhaps. But also a push towards systematic reviews of literature and random control trials to find a kind of more quantitative, harder sense of evidence for what uh, our policy might be based. Um, then there's a the question of the, the evidence base that we actually have, uh, and that we risk a rather having rather fragmented evidence base because a lot of the research is produced by rather short-term, small-scale. Um, and barely connected projects producing separate evidence, um, often based on rather different theoretical and conceptual frameworks or bases, and employing relatively small-scale methodologies that you would have difficulty scaling up. Secondly, we're investigating our own world, unlike many other researchers in higher education. We are actually interested parties in the object of our studies. Um, and many of the research agendas, I'm thinking of particularly of PhD students at the moment, are, are being stimulated or uh, provoked by their own experience, either as students or as employees <coughs> of universities. Um, so they have a kind of emotional attachment to their research that isn't the case necessarily in other areas. Clearly also researchers, in terms of higher education policy, researchers are on the uh, receiving end of the policy, so then have an interest as well in that kind of thing. Um, and then finally, perhaps controversially, I would say that too much research on higher education is based on the assumption of a golden age that is being dismantled in front of our very eyes, rather than a, a more forward-looking perspective on the very serious challenges that are facing us in years to come. Again, that's an issue we could debate. We should also recognise, therefore, the limitations of higher education research. Much of it is short-term, small-scale, um, consultancy-style funding. Uh, it's fragmented, and we do have a weak institutional basis for research, higher education research in this country. We've tended to focus on the public-like life of higher education, perhaps the things that are at arm's length to us, and less so on the rather up-close and personal and the wicked issues. We've been a bit safe, perhaps, if you like. Uh, higher education research is also a field of studies. It's a number of different uh, areas of study. It's not yet, may never be, a discipline. Um, 
And actually, very many of the mainstream disciplines have been rather reluctant to come and study higher education. Some have, more and more are, but they have been tended to be rather reluctant in, in bringing their disciplinary-based concepts and ideas into higher education research. So I would say higher education studies are not yet a fully-fledged discipline. It's not yet disinterested research on reasonably long timescales with open agendas and based on reflective and critical intellectual values and practices, as Peter Scott wrote a few years back. Um, and then we ought to think about how realistic our conceptions of policy making and implementation are. I've always argued you cannot simply extrapolate from a set of findings to a policy initiative. Most of the research that is done is analysing a problem. It's not analysing the solutions to those problems. Some, some of it is, but not most of it. It's not a linear, rational, analytical process of examining all the evidence and reading off from it of policy implications of, of this and then formulating well-designed uh, interventions to guarantee uh, to achieve the outcomes desired. And if we're ready to, to understand policy making and the place of research evidence in it, I would argue, as Stephen Ball does, my colleague at the Institute, uh, that we have to acknowledge, as he says, the messy realities of influence, pressure, dogma, expediency, conflict, compromise, intransigence, resistance, error, opposition, and pragmatism in the policy process. There are many, obviously, other factors than research evidence in policy making. Clearly, politics, uh, uh, political expediency, the need to bring the party together, ideology, public opinion, budgets, all of these things are equally involved in the policy-making process as research evidence. <coughs> so uh, I would also argue that the higher education research and policy communities are not so separate. I mean, I've moved between the two. Amy has. Julie has. Uh, sorry. Um, uh, and there are many people in the higher education world who have moved between research and policy uh, and practice fields. But there's a question around, around how far this constructive engagement should go, because clearly we don't want higher education research to be simply driven by policy needs. And what's one of the interesting passages or, or pieces in um, uh, Jeff Whitty's book uh, talks about... Um, a speech that John Nisbet made at the birth of the foundation of BIRA, the Education Research Association, where he characterised the relationship between research and policy as indirect. It's more about sensitising policymakers to problems than solving them. Um, it, in a sense, research is about helping policymakers to reconsider issues, think differently, conceptualise what the problem is, and challenge some of the old assumptions. And there is, in effect a rather serendipitous and loose relationship between research and policy. And I think we need to be a bit more modest in our aspirations for the ways in which research evidence might um, impact uh, on policy and practice and have a greater deal, degree of um, realism about what can be achieved. And then finally, so I'm going on a bit here. Oh, before I say, uh, I'm not usually prone to um, recommending politicians, publications, especially not their <coughs> biographies. But this is not a biography, it's by a former MP and cabinet minister, Nick Rainsford, published recently. Uh, it's more about uh, it's, uh, an analysis of a series of case studies of policy developments 
um, over, the, over several decades, actually. And uh, I, I would recommend it as, as possibly one of the more <coughs> insightful uh, pieces of writing from, from, an, from a former politician about the policy-making process. It's quite useful for researchers to understand some of the complexities that were involved and what, what seemed to work and what didn't work in those circumstances. So that's all, always quite useful to, to hear from that side of the house. Policymakers might reflect on, well, the importance of funding and supporting a wide range of research in, in education and in higher education in particular. So uh, it should be concerned with the development of education as a field of study, including purely curiosity-led inquiry. And some of that might not be supportive of the current policy consensus. Some of it might actually be in opposition to government policy. And all of this is very important to the health of education education research. So I think policymakers should be aware and realise that. Um, they should also be aware that there are very, very different pressures now, and quite intense pressures on academic researchers uh, to win research bids, to gather high-quality and robust evidence, to analyse these in rigorous ways, to develop findings that build on early research, uh, to develop the field, to publish, to have impact. So these are very different purposes, timescales, audiences, writing styles, and so on, to those familiar to policymakers. Also, I think policymakers need to realise also that there isn't a linear rationalist approach to evidence-based policymaking. That, that's unrealistic. That we may be talking more about evidence-influenced policymaking or indeed evidence-informed policy. So it's a more indirect, a more diffuse model that I think is appropriate. Then I would hope that policymakers also in commissioning research seek the highest academic standards. So, for example, I would say peer evaluation, peer review is very important, in, even in policy research. Also, and I've suffered this myself, to acknowledge uh, researchers' caveats. Uh, not all of the findings uh, have the same degree of confidence, or you don't have the same degree of confidence in all of the findings. Often, policymakers ignore that in the way they cite and reference evidence and use evidence in support of their policies. And also that they should recognise that researchers often say <coughs> uncomfortable things and should be allowed to say uncomfortable things even in policy research reports. The report is from the research team to the policy body. But I've often had, as a researcher, pressure to change the way in which I'm describing things or to take things out because they're uncomfortable to the policy makers. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Policy makers, policy bodies can accept that they differ, that they have different agendas, have different drivers, and can say openly why they are not taking the recommendation, if there is a recommendation in the research, uh, on, on board. This could be a much more open process. Mm -hmm. So I'm hope, hoping that in the future policymakers will uh, try to persuade me less to change, change the way in which I'm describing things. And then there's the question of how would policymakers like the research to be disseminated, to be communicated? 
uh, in order to have the greatest likelihood of impact. What's the format? What kind of style? What medium? What's the timing? Uh, just to finish then on an example from my own experience, when I was at the OU at Cherry, we ran something called the Higher Education Empirical Database. It was called the Research, research Rolling, Rolling Research Brief initially. It was basically, we took all of the journals that reported, or journal articles that reported um, empirical evidence, the policy reports that reported empirical evidence, OECD data, PISA data, and so on, and we produced summaries of each of these, lodged these in a database. They're searchable by theme. You may well have come across it yourself. It was, when Cherry was dissolved, it was taken over by the Quality Assurance Agency. They did it for a couple of years, but I'm looking at it, the site recently. It doesn't seem to be being continued, which is a shame. That might be a medium through which policymakers can uh, see the evidence, search the evidence. We also did things like every so often, particularly when we were commissioned to do so, we took a particular policy area, policy theme, looked at all the um, entries and did a kind of commentary or overview uh, of what we know and what we don't know about a certain topic. Um, at the time, it seemed to be useful. It was certainly funded by people like uh, the Ministry and Hefke and so on. Um, I don't think it's been carried on. It may not be so useful anymore. There may be other media. People might look at wonky more often, actually, for their insights into the current research. That's quite possible. But it would be interesting to know what is the most, what are the most useful sources for policymakers of research evidence and what kind of format time and so on. So there's my context for you. I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's what you were looking for and it will inform and uh, we can come back to some of the things I've thrown out there, statements I've made that might be slightly controversial uh, during the rest of the day.